Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something else. This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. It's 1984. Steve had been drug running one way or the other for more than a decade. But he'd been behind bars for three whole years, and he wasn't going back. Now that he was out, he figured he could get some straight work in Miami. He'd been a model, a skin diver. He could do it again. So he set up some interviews. He got one with a Rolls-Royce dealership. I thought, well, how hard could it be to sell Rolls-Royces? But when Steve showed up, he noticed these two men in the office. And uh, there are two guys sitting there talking to uh, the boss. And uh, they left, and I knew that they were the feds. After they left, the manager told Steve that he couldn't offer him a job selling luxury cars. He could have a job on the used car lot if he wanted. But that's not what Steve's about. As we know, Steve doesn't do regular. So he tried his luck bartending at his friend Donnie's pub. It could be glamorous, spinning bottles for beautiful women. But on his first day of work... The feds had come in and uh, talked to uh, Donnie's father. And uh, so Donnie's old man says, you know, the American Beverage Association frowns upon ex-convicts working behind the bar. Man, did that piss me off. I can't say for certain that actual feds were following Steve around, making sure that no one would hire him. But it's definitely possible. Miami had become a much different place in the three years he was in prison. In 1981, Miami earned the title Murder Capital of the United States. The Miami-Dade morgue had so many dead bodies. They had to lease a refrigerated truck from a nearby Burger King to keep them frozen. Most of the murders were connected to the cartel wars and the nonviolent dealers and users who got caught up in the middle. And South Floridians wondered where the cocaine cowboys will strike next. Miami was the entry point for 70% of the marijuana and cocaine coming into the country. And the federal government wanted to crack down on all of it, which made Miami a battleground city in President Reagan's so-called war on drugs. Former Vice President George H.W. Bush established the South Florida Task Force to fight drug smuggling. It was the largest and most expensive drug enforcement operation in U.S. history at the time. Here's Reagan on the task force. There's no question that the South Florida Task Force has been a clear and unqualified success. Drug-related arrests in the area are up 27%, and the street value of all these drugs is estimated at more than an incredible $3 billion. In other words, it's possible that the feds were trailing Steve. And that's pretty messed up. He did his time. He should have been a free man with the same opportunities as anyone else. But here's the thing. 
Steve could have said yes to the used car dealership job or another regular gig. But that just wasn't Steve's way. It got to the point where he couldn't pay his rent, and he moved into an abandoned packing crate under a highway overpass. He had to relieve himself in an empty pickle jar. But every once in a while, someone special would pull over into the breakdown lane and pay him a visit. He used to take his lunch hour and drive down in his convertible. Joe Pegg had gotten out of Eglin a year after Steve, and unlike his former prison buddy, he had no intention of going straight. He used to yell up to me, hey, Cole, you ready to work? And I'd say, no, I'm going to find gainful employment. But for some reason, Peg kept asking. Maybe he'd been around long enough to know that someone like Steve, who could pull off an art heist while he was on trial for another crime, was unlikely to stay away from the criminal underworld for long. And it would be worth keeping around. So according to Steve, Peg kept trying. Peg came by and yelled up at me, hey, you ready to work? I punched my head through this uh, opening trap door and I'm taking a shit on a Vlasic pickle jar and I said, uh, I'm ready to work. At this point in Steve's life, he figured there was no point in him even trying to go straight. He was a criminal. Guys like Joe Pegg accepted it. The feds asserted it. Steve would just have to own it. There was a rage within me that was me against the government, and I knew how corrupt our government was by throwing a guy like me in prison. A guy who was arrested for a very minor role in a drug operation that he had left behind years ago. A guy who wanted things to go back to normal. His normal. The kind where he might still run fast boats, pulling money from the water. In his eyes, the government was the enemy. And uh, I was well on my way to becoming a serious outlaw. And I was going to do everything in my power to drive their dicks in the dirt, get as much money as I could, and uh, retire. I'm Leah Carroll. And from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. Chapter 4. Poor Pablo. So in 1985, after years of dabbling in drug trafficking, Steve finally turned his side hustle into his day job. He said after he made contact with Joe Pegg, he started making runs, mostly to Jamaica and the Bahamas. And from the way Steve tells it, this is his golden era. He had an income again one the government wasn't going to touch. A social life. Steve talked about it all with Joe Flood, the journalist, on their road trip to Miami. There was this one particular night in 1986. Steve was at a bar called Flanagan's. I walked in there. I, was, I still look pretty good then. And I see all these uh, cheerleaders. And I see this, this black girl. I saw her before on the field. Steve knew she was a cheerleader for the Miami Dolphins. She had these long legs, red fingernails, and the confidence of a leading lady. She locked eyes with him 
She went like this. She turned around, she looked at me, and she went like this. She beckoned him over with one manicured finger and was clearly expecting him to follow. Grabs me, yanks me out on the floor, and it's a slow dance. And I'm a real good dancer, so I'm dancing. I, I'm dancing, I'm saying goodbye, and she, she, she yanked me back again. I says, all right, this is my number. Memorize it, call me. <laughs> and I was hoping she'd call. Her name was Patron. We automatically just locked eyes, and that's, and I waved him over and called him over. <laughs> and he came over, he says, I'll lead if you follow. We had a chemistry. It, it was, yeah, I liked Steve right away. Back then, Patron Archer was 21 years old, a woman with her whole life ahead of her. She wasn't looking to follow anyone, but she found Steve captivating. I don't even know how to explain Steve. He was such a character. Everyone he met loved him and liked him. Steve and Patron got married just a month and a half after they met. We actually loved each other at one time. I was happy. My producer, Pallavi, visited Patron at her home in North Hollywood, Florida. She found that Patron, now in her 50s, was still just as beautiful, with that same heart-stopping smile. But there were some noticeable changes. She took frequent cigarette breaks, and her eyes were bloodshot. Patron paged through scrapbooks full of cheerleading pictures of her on the field, as well as a letter signed by June Taylor, the director and choreographer of the Dolphins Cheerleaders. As she flipped through the books, she came across her honeymoon pictures. There's one photo where she and Steve are standing in front of a waterfall. It could be a magazine cover. That's Jamaica. They have this mineral bath place. Um, Steve took us there. He knew Jamaica better than I did. Patron was born there, but she left when she was 13. You know, we leave and we become so Americanized. I never really went back until I met Steve. Steve had a lot of friends in Jamaica. They all called him Rambo. Rambo was the name Steve earned on his many smuggling trips. But Patron didn't know that when they were newlyweds. She and Steve were too busy falling in love. Steve never really um, discussed his business with me. Now, I'm looking at all these photographs in Jamaica, and I'm wondering what my husband doing at that time. I married Steve thinking that he was an import-exporter, and that's what he did for a living. And at first, she was too happy, too busy, to think about it all that much. They had the kids early, Jamie in December of 1987, just one year after they met on the dance floor. They had Stevie a year and a half later, in April of 1989. They moved into their big house in Kendall, a suburban part of Miami. And Patron went to work right away. She was a flight attendant when the kids were still babies. So Steve would take care of them during her trips. He'd take them to restaurants for meals. They all knew Steve and the kids because that's where Steve would take them and feed them. And he'd buy steaks. He'd chew the, even when they were little, chew the steak for James. <laughs> like the bird does with their, <laughs> with their little babies, birds, you know? <laughs> I just thought it was the funniest thing. He'd play sports with them. He'd read with them. And he taught them to love the water 
like he did. They were in that pool every day. Every single day they were in the pool. Just threw him in the pool, dove in, and that's how he taught him to swim. Then, Patron's employer, Eastern Airlines, went out of business. So she began staying home with the kids, and Steve was home less and less. He'd tell me he was leaving. He wouldn't tell me where he was going and what he was doing. Sometimes, Steve would be out on a job. But other times, he'd go out with his friends to bars and strip clubs. He'd pay for girls and gamble the nights away. And he'd drink. Basically, I'm out carousing every night, coming back, sleeping it off in the compound. And uh, she was getting pretty fed up with us because uh, she was the type of woman that wanted the white picket fence and, you know, the ideal uh, leave it to beaver husband. And I was the uh, opposite of that. Actually, what Patron wanted was the type of husband who treated her like a partner and stayed faithful, who didn't go out drinking and gambling behind her back. But sure, it was the white picket fence. Almost from the beginning, there were problems in the relationship. So, this uh, one particular night, uh, I drive back 3, 4 in the morning, and uh, she's got my uh, daughter in her arms, and she flings open the front door, and uh, she's got a butcher knife in her hand and says, uh, I will kill you where you stand. You have a wife and a daughter. Most men would kill for this. What the fuck are you doing? After a while, it was clear to Patron that the life she imagined with Steve on the dance floor, it wasn't the life she would ever have with him. We were just different. There were nothing similar about us at all. I lived in one master bedroom. She lived in the other. And, uh, you know, we'd dock up in the kitchen every once in a while. And we'd have conversation in the kitchen. If you consider fuck you a conversation. Of course Patron was upset. Who wouldn't be? She didn't just have a problem with Steve's line of work. She also hated the lifestyle that came with it. And she really hated that he dragged the entire family into it. My son made this to me was in pre-K. Okay, so his teacher gave them a little questionnaire to fill out in school. And these are the questions. What does your mother look like? Brown, he says. (laughs) How old is your mother? Not older. What can your mother do best? Cleans up. (laughs) What makes your mother mad? My daddy. He knew back then. He was a baby. Mm -hmm. Very perceptive. Yep. What makes your mother happy? I don't know. When you grow up, where will your mother be happy? I don't know. Kids have this sense of, you know, you think they don't know and they're not aware. Did they ever hear the fights? Yeah, poor little things. Yeah, they were there for a lot of that stuff. Patron still worries about Stevie. 
And now he's all the way across the country. But his demons seem to follow him wherever he goes. I, I don't sleep. My mind is always like going. Like every couple hours, I'm up all the time. I'm still thinking about Stevie. I'm sitting here talking with you, I'm thinking about Stevie. He consumes me. He's always on my mind. I'll make myself physically sick. Before Patron met Steve, she was this brazen, beautiful woman. A Miami Dolphins cheerleader who, unlike her husband, actually got on the field during games. But in her marriage, her life became all about Steve, about managing the wrecking ball and trying to make sure the family was okay in the fallout. And now, Patron fears Stevie has been following in his father's footsteps. He was so much like his father. It's just, it's just, it's like the same person reincarnated. The things that he says, how he says it, his behavior, the way he acts and things that he does, everything is like Steve. It's, it's just, I don't like most of it, but there's nothing I can do about it. He is who he is, but I need Steve to find himself and not who his father was. Patron thinks a lot about the legacy her husband left behind for Stevie. The smuggler's code, an attraction to danger, a piece of art that may or may not be a priceless Picasso. It's a lot to carry, and she stays awake each night hoping her son won't break under its weight. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back in 1985, before Steve met his wife and started his family, he said he started drug running for Joe Pegg. Joe Pegg revolutionized South Florida drug smuggling. In the late 70s and early 80s, he had an armada of boats and small planes, all smuggling thousands of pounds of drugs, mostly marijuana, from Columbia back to the Florida coastline, where Pegg owned dozens of waterfront properties. In 1980, when he was snagged in the FBI's Operation Grouper, he jumped bail and hid out on Norman's Key, a tiny Bahamian island owned by Pablo Escobar's partner, Carlos Lader. He was apprehended in Jamaica in 1982, and then he was sent off to Eglin, where he and Steve would eventually be scrubbing toilets together. Peg gave the feds info on the ins and outs of his smuggling enterprise, in exchange for an early release in 1985. He was facing 30 years. He served three. 
little did the feds know, he was ready to do it all over again. That's when, according to Steve, Peg drove up to his packing crate and offered him $5,000 to be part of a run, putting Steve back out on the water. So I uh, hook up out of out of Port Everglades, and uh, we run out to uh, the Devil's Tongue, which uh, took all day. And uh, the Devil's Tongue is the deepest part of the ocean, coming right up the middle of the, uh, the Bahama chain. He was in a group of about 10 small boats. So I was a stacker. You know, that's the low end on the totem pole. Steve collected bales of marijuana from large boats anchored off the coast of Jamaica onto smaller boats. They would uh, slow the boat down to about two knots, and uh, you would just throw the bales off in the wake, and I'd grappling hook up, throw the uh, bales in, and uh, stack them in the boat. The minute the boat was uh, filled, then you'd peel off and go to your destination. Steve had a knack for the rhythm of collecting. He was at home in the water. To a smuggler, the water represents work. The rain represents when you should go. We wanted thundering. The work was meditative. But then, something broke his trance. We only have Steve's account of the following event. So we can't say for certain it happened. But he describes it in great detail. And it seems like the kind of thing that would stick with you. I'm in the back of the boat, and uh, what happened was uh, the Cubans that were next to us, I hear this gun go off, and brains get splattered all over uh, the top of my head. And I'm, I'm laying down against the uh, keel of the boat, and I look up, and uh, they're rolling this guy off into the water. And uh, they tell me, Don't worry about him, man. He's a snitch. Steve had seen his share of violence on his run to Mexico and with the Detroit Mafia. But this was different. It was a cold-blooded execution. Witnessing it was like taking an oath. For as long as he was on the water, he would live or die by a pirate's code. Over the next four years, Steve did nearly 30 runs, mostly to Jamaica. Before every trip, he'd pray for his safety. Every time I got an assignment, I'd constantly try to read the tea leaves. The tea leaves, uh, for me, was praying to God, even though I was asking God to help me on all these illegal endeavors. It's 1989. Steve was 40 years old. He'd been married to Patron for almost three years. He was still making regular runs, but he wasn't in the same kind of shape he'd once been. And he was tired. One day, Steve said he was visiting Joe Pegg, a.k.a. Mustafa, at his home in Fort Lauderdale. Now, I'm deep in the bowels of Mustafa's pleasure palace. When Steve said Peg brought out some cocaine. He says, come on, man, do a little. I said, yeah, okay, I'll do a pinche with you. Now, one thing leads to another, and uh, 
he says to me, listen, come on, bud. I need you to do one more trip for me, one more trip. Steve had already been on dozens of runs. He wasn't sure he had another one in him. But Peg was pressing. He says, well, this is uh, not for me, but it's uh, for Pablo. In case it's not clear, the Pablo they're talking about here is Pablo Escobar. A pretty big claim. But remember, Joe was connected with the Medellin cartel through Carlos later. And uh, I said, yeah, man, he's, uh, he's taking a lot of steam in the papers these days. And one of the things I'll never forget, he said to me, he goes, poor Pablo gets blamed for everything. I go, he sure does. Peg allegedly told Steve that he wanted him to go down to Cuba. He would bring some electronics with him, which were in high demand in Cuba because of the U.S. embargo. In exchange, Steve would collect drugs from the Castro regime. And there was another detail that made it the perfect run for Steve. What with his track record for art heists. Want to trade this artwork off? Remember, a lot of Cubans fled to Florida after Castro took over, and they left their valuables in the U.S. Embassy, thinking they could someday return and pick them up. And according to Steve, the Cuban government was using these valuables as currency with the cartels. And the cartels were accepting them as payment. The whole Medellin cartel, they were in bed with the whole Castro regime. This is a huge claim. Experts have speculated that the Castro regime was connected with cartel activity. It's kind of an open secret, but it's never been proven definitively. By the mid-80s, the U.S. Coast Guard was detecting a dramatic increase in drug activity off the Cuban coast. Castro needed money to fund his many revolutions. The USSR had been backing him, but they were at a breaking point. The Berlin Wall would fall just a few months after Steve's run. So Castro had to find other sources of income. The scenario would be for a small twin-engine airplane with maybe 1,000 to 2,000 pounds of cocaine fly over Cuba, drop the drugs uh, to a pre-designated rendezvous point. Cuba was a great halfway point between Colombia and Florida. It was only 90 miles from Key West. So the idea that the Medellin cartel was doing a run in cooperation with the Castro regime, as Steve claims, seems plausible. Steve was unsure about this run. He'd been thinking about making his exit from the game. But then, he said that Peg told him exactly what he needed to hear. I said, yeah, well, now that we're on the subject, how much will I be making? He says, no, everybody's willing to give you 10%. I said, well, then I'm fucking in. The Cuba run would be his golden parachute to retirement, a pirate's 401k. Steve started to plan his trip. Smuggling is a lot like football. And... uh, We were about to receive the kickoff from Cuba. And Steve had some serious pregame jitters. After 30 runs, he knew the danger that lay ahead. All those episodes that I'd been under were really starting to take their toll on me. I thought all the benders risking my life. He'd taken so many hits on his drug runs already. And while his employers kept tapping him for jobs, 
it wasn't clear what kind of position that left him in. I can't help but think back to his football days at Michigan State, when he was the rabbit. Fast, but expendable. And all beat up. And Steve didn't think he could take the hits anymore. He had a wife who wanted him home. A huge house and a growing family. There's this sliding doors moment. Like, maybe in one scenario, Steve does the run and makes enough money to put crime behind him. Maybe Patron could work while he stayed at home with the kids. Feeding them steak dinners. Swimming with them in the pool. This could be their new beginning. got to realize that my son was just born April the 16th, 1989. That was just a few months before this run. My daughter was a year and a half old. And uh, I'm thinking, look at what I'm putting my family through here. I think Steve knew deep down this would be his last play. As I recall, this day there were two to three foot swells, but... <clears throat> You're in the boat, and uh, what happens is uh, the waves come in sets, you know, two, three, four, five, maybe. Steve took the job, and now he was on his way to Cuba on a 45-foot Midnight Express. It's a small luxury boat. The brand shares a name with a famous 1970s movie about drug smuggling. And that's probably not a coincidence. The man who co-owned the boat manufacturer admitted he allowed an accused marijuana smuggler to launder $500,000 in drug profits through his company. I imagine Steve probably knew this while he was riding the waves. We were uh, headed down towards Havana. You know, I'm catching the waves, and then you get a big one, or you get a little one. And you try to catch uh, the cadence and the rhythm of the sea. Nobody's saying a word, or just... Uh, all in our own little trance. As I listened to the tapes, I kept thinking, oh, we're getting to the point, the climax of our movie. The moment where Steve meets Fred and Betty, where he holds the piece in his hands on the Cuban shore. He stares at the bright glazes as the colors glint in the sun. And he has a beautiful and terrifying thought that this was the most important thing he will ever hold. But that didn't happen. We have over 30 hours of tape from Steve, his own telling of his life story, or part of his life story as it turns out, because this is where they end with him on the water, on his way to Cuba. But the run itself, what happened when he got to Cuba, he never gets there. Maybe there are other recordings elsewhere, but we haven't found them. Instead, his tapes end with this unfulfilled promise of an ending. It's kind of fitting. Years later, Steve would have a lawyer draft an affidavit that described how he got Fred and Betty. He'd say he got a drink at the Floriditas, Hemingway's favorite bar. He'd say he met with a curator at the Finca, who told him the history of the piece. And then, the next day, 
he'd explained that he collected the piece in a military medic case. He'd claim he didn't even open the case until he got back to Florida. So Steve never had that magical moment with Fred and Betty, the one that I had imagined for him. In Cuba, at his home, the Finca Vigia, Hemingway wrote what some consider to be his masterpiece. The Old Man and the Sea. And hearing the words Hemingway wrote, for the first time, I can see the symmetry between these two men. He looked across the sea and knew how alone he was now. But he could see the prisms in the deep, dark water, and the lines stretching ahead, and the strange undulation of the calm. The clouds were building up now for the trade wind, and he looked ahead and saw a flight of wild ducks etching themselves against the sky over the water, then blurring, then etching again. And he knew no man was ever alone on the sea. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Steve got back to Miami right when the Medellin cartel was falling apart. Remember that in Cuba, just about a month later, Fidel Castro arrested and executed General Arnaldo Ochoa for drug smuggling and treason. According to a former Castro bodyguard, Ochoa was killed to cover up the regime's involvement with the cartel. Things in Miami were changing rapidly, too. The DEA had cracked down on the cartels. The FBI had figured out how to trace and prosecute money laundering. And then there was Steve. The music had stopped, and he was left holding this piece. He never got his 10% cut, as he was promised. All he got was the ceramic. His dream to retire was over. For Steve, this was the beginning of the end. Joe Flood, the reporter, didn't get Steve on tape about the run itself, but he did record his conversations with Steve later, on their road trip, and he caught Steve in a reflective mood. I don't feel real good about myself, uh, and I haven't for a lot of years, brother. Well, how so? Well, this is how so. And, I mean, come on. Look how I, look how I had to support my family. You know what I mean? This regret. This vulnerability, it's heartbreaking, but it's also fleeting. Because just as soon as he takes responsibility, he finds a way to blame someone else. She was going to turn me in. <laughs> she sabotaged everything. After the Cuba run, Steve became convinced that his wife, Patron, was going to turn him into the feds. So when the feds came... He blamed her. The fucking feds, uh, they confiscated the boat, they got the planes, you know what I mean? They got everything. I'm getting deja vu here. 
Steve felt sure his wife turned him into the feds, just like he believed his mother did almost 10 years ago. We asked Patron about it. I have no idea what they're referring to. I have no idea because I, I would never do that. I remember calling the police once, but that was for a domestic incident. Don't forget, Steve and I had a really tumultuous relationship. So maybe he was lashing out or... But that just simply is not true. It's hard to say who's telling the truth. But ultimately, this incident would drive a permanent wedge between the members of the Coe family. Jamie sided with her mother. For the love of everything that is holy, never happened. And she wouldn't do that because she wouldn't want to, A, put me and my brother through that fucking kind of stress. And B, whilst my parents didn't get along as I got older, she would never want to put my dad through that. But Stevie wasn't convinced. DA is good at what they do. The feds are good at what they do, you know. They know how to get into a house and separate, you know. And uh, my mom was afraid. Whether or not Patron turned him in, Steve was face-to-face with the feds. Steve figured he was in big trouble. But then he met with this one FBI agent. A guy that arrested me, he played linebacker at Arkansas State. And this guy, we'll call him Agent Linebacker, had some info on Steve that went way back, way before Cuba. It seemed those off-brand Dutch masterpieces, the ones from Steve's fun little heist, had resurfaced in connection to a federal drug investigation. In July 1989, an art dealer named Anna Barnes testified during her own trial that she had received the paintings from an unknown Michigan drug dealer and kept them in a safe deposit box in Miami. So Agent Linebacker did Steve a solid. Well, he said, you're a stand-up guy, and uh, we would have had no shot at recovering these paintings. And suddenly, Steve had something to negotiate. According to Steve, they made a deal. Steve would have to hand over the paintings and tell them about his runs to Cuba. And in return, they'd let him plead guilty to a much smaller charge, possession of stolen property. Steve brought the three paintings to the Howard Johnson's Motor Lodge in North Miami Beach. Steve claims he surrendered them to the FBI agent in an empty bag of pork rinds. I don't put it past him. He was trying to show them who was boss. All this time, Steve thought he had the government wrapped around his little finger. But I think they were always playing him. The feds didn't really want Steve. But the FBI figured he might give up the kind of guys who would attract headlines. But Steve remembered the guy on the boat from his first Jamaica run. The guy who was shot in the head for being a rat. Names were the one thing he couldn't give. So the feds detained him in Miami and put some pressure on him. Steve figured he might end up in North Florida at Eglin, where he met Joe Pegg for the first time. But instead, he was put on a plane, shackled together with dozens of others. And no one told him where he was headed. Steve was terrified. At that moment, he didn't know what was happening or where he was going. 
It wasn't until hours later that he learned he was being dropped off at Kirtland Air Force Base. He was taken to a cell in the middle of the desert in New Mexico, nearly 2,000 miles away from his family. It was 1991, nearly two years after the Cuba run. His babies were toddlers now. Jamie was three. Stevie was two. Steve sent letters home to Patron. When Pallavi visited Patron in Florida, she read some of them out loud. I guess he was bored. He tells everything. I have four walls, a cement bunk, and a cage for the door with a slot to slide a tray of food. The door cage has a row of 13 holes across the bottom of the slot, 390 square holes. He counted them. He said he was in solitary for 23 hours a day. Patron was shuffling through a few letters. She must have had at least 20 pages, fully covered in Steve's handwriting. She had Pallavi read one of the letters out loud. She said it was too painful for her to read it herself. Dearest Slim, I miss you and the babies beyond words. Baby, I wish, as surely as God lives, that I've never had an angry word with you. My one hope is getting back in your arms and saving enough honest money to buy myself a ring and have a big wedding for you. I wanted to provide the white picket fence, love, and romance that you wanted and deserve. Your husband, Steve. Steve was in New Mexico for eight months. It might not sound like a lot, but it was isolated and lonely. He had time to reflect. It was really all he could do. Steve was let out of custody in April 1991. He was back in his home and wanted to start fresh, give Patron the life he felt she deserved, the husband who doesn't leave for days on end a true partner. He had missed eight months of his children growing up. He didn't want to miss anymore. But Florida put him back on his toes. Andrew right now at 120 miles per hour. That's starting to become a major Category 3 hurricane. Do not think that uh, you are in any way safe if you have not hunkered down in, and, and got that mattress over you, friends. This is the time to do it. Hurricane Andrew was headed straight for South Florida. The National Hurricane Center said it recorded wind gusts of 164 miles an hour during the height of the storm, which was the strongest hurricane to hit the Miami area directly in 27 years. Patron and Steve grabbed the kids and huddled in a closet. We shouldn't have stayed in that house because it was actually not safe. When you looked at the house after, it was just a stupid thing to do. Hurricane Andrew flattened much of Miami. The co-home was essentially destroyed. They went without power for months. But Steve still didn't want to sell it. He wanted his kids to grow up in that house. He couldn't afford the repairs, but he was desperate. Steve took out a loan on the house for my my name. And we got in trouble. We were living off of that money at that time, you know, and you can't do that. This kind of predatory lending is common. 
especially after a disaster, and especially for people who are in a vulnerable position. They officially lost the house in 2008, just as the U.S. housing bubble burst. Once it's it, I couldn't, couldn't do it no more. Lost the house. Shit. So, lost everything. My shit's everywhere. Shit. The Coes had nowhere to live. All of Steve's belongings, portraits, a set of large sculptures from his trips to Jamaica, and other souvenirs he'd collected for years were scattered to different friends' places. The one thing he made sure to keep on his person was Fred and Betty. A potential Picasso owned by Ernest Hemingway. It could have been worth millions. This could be his family's saving grace. But first, Steve needed a buyer. The most logical option would have been Joe Pegg. But Pegg wasn't going to be driving by with an offer anytime soon. When Steve lost the house, Pegg was in the middle of serving a 30-year prison sentence. I had a sneaking suspicion that by now, Joe Pegg had either been released or was on his way. His inmate number didn't turn up anything useful. So I found a number for his son. When I called, he picked up the phone. He was nice. He said he'd talk to his dad. Then he sent me some texts. Questions his dad had clearly told him to ask in order to vet me. What's the piece called? Fred and Betty. Is it at a museum or with his family? It's with his family. Then I texted, Steve had some previous art experience in Detroit. His son texted back right away. Laughing boy. Apparently, I passed the test because his son asked me to call him back in a few days. So I did. And Joe Pegg, the dope king, picked up the phone. He didn't give me permission to use his recording. I wish I could share his voice with you. It's a kind of panhandle twang, weighed down with age. And Pegg was in the mood to chat. We talked for about an hour about certain topics. He confirmed that he and Steve met at Eglin. He said he asked around about Steve when he got out of his second prison sentence in October 2019. Apparently none of Joe Pegg's connections had heard from him. When I told Pegg that Steve had passed in 2018, he was noticeably sad. He said it was a shame. Pegg said he was trying to be a good boy and stay out of trouble and he was waiting for the statute of limitations to run out before he could really talk. So we didn't talk about Cuba. We didn't talk about Fred and Betty. I wish it wouldn't exist, actually. Patron feels the piece is a constant reminder of the pain Steve caused, and still causes them. Seems like it's more trouble than it's worth, actually, you know? Steve spent the better part of his life obsessing about that thing, I think. And you know what kills me is that now Stevie's taking on this thing. And it's weighed down her family for a little over three decades. For almost all of her son's life. And the kicker isn't that the thing might be fake. The kicker is that it might be real. Next time on Hemingway's Picasso. People do say... 
criminals sometimes exchange paintings, even if they're not marketable or sellable, because it's, it's some form of power. Steve thought every business transaction was a cocaine deal. He's a pain in the ass with this drinking. There's no doubt about it. He's got an alcohol problem. There was this real sense that, and for me, that this story was just sort of cursed. You know, it's like it, everyone it touched, it, something went wrong. I went from literally being like, this is not a Picasso, to being like, oh my god, maybe it is. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't think of that. N none of us did. This show is hosted and reported by me, Leah Carroll. Senior producer is Pallavi Kotomasu. Associate producer is India Whitkin. Editor is Lizzie Jacobs. Original music by Emma Palm. Audio engineer is Sam Baer. Fact checker is Erica Gaida. Development producer is Grant Irving. In association with Vespucci Group, based on a story by Joe Flood, executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Steve Ackerman, Johnny Galvin, Daniel Turkin, and Nick Katz.